So last week, uh, I opened by talking about the Lord of the Rings. This week, let's revisit another classic, The Princess Bride. If y'all remember, in The Princess Bride, the hero's name is Wesley, and Wesley is on a quest to rescue Buttercup, his love, from a wicked prince. But Wesley is captured by the prince, who then, in a jealous rage, tortures Wesley to death. So then Wesley's two friends take him in hopes that perhaps he can be revived. They take him to a man named Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal. And Miracle Max examines Wesley's body and comes to the conclusion that he's only mostly dead, which means he's still slightly alive. And if you remember, he takes the fireplace bellows and he breathes air into Wesley's mouth. And then he says, what's so great that you want to stick around? What's this life worth living for, right? And the answer when he pushes on Wesley's chest is true love, right? That's worth staying alive. Uh, well, y'all, as we, as we pick up today in the middle of John chapter 11, Jesus is coming to the little town of Bethany to attend the funeral of a very dear friend. Someone close to Jesus has died. His name is Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And there's a little detail that we, we were given at the end of last week's scripture, and we'll see it again today, that Lazarus has now been dead four days. Four days, which may seem like an incidental detail to us, but when we put the, we kind of do the math here, Jesus, when Jesus first heard of Lazarus' sickness, Lazarus was apparently already near death, and Jesus purposefully waited two extra days before saying, let's get up and go to Bethany. Jesus waited and allowed Lazarus to die. And now it's been four days since Lazarus died, and part of the reason for all of that may be this. There was a custom, a belief among the Jews in these ancient times that when a person died, their spirit would remain near their body for up to three days. And the hope, of course, for their loved ones is that perhaps within those first three days, there might be some hope for resuscitation, some hope for a revival of their body. Now, they didn't call it mostly dead, but that, that was their hope, that their loved one's spirit remained nearby, and perhaps there was a chance that they would rejoin the living. But y'all, we're now four days from the death of Lazarus. Four days, which means he is really gone. There's no hope. There's no doubt. And yet Jesus arrives right on the outskirts of town with this audacious claim. He says it to Martha. We saw it at the end of last week's message. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, that's, that, that's one thing to say that. Anybody can say the words. But it's another thing to show it, to prove it. Because what we have now, four days after the fact, Jesus' task is not to resuscitate a dying man. He's got to resurrect a dead man. He's got to raise a dead man. Can he do it? Well, let's find out. Y'all recall that Mar uh, Martha, in response to Jesus' claim, confesses her faith. Yes, Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And having made that confession of faith, we pick this up now in verse 28. 
When Martha had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So in, 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 in these ancient communities, there was, uh, it's not, they didn't do funerals the same way we do. We have an hour visitation, maybe a 40-minute funeral, and then we either go to the family's house for lunch or go home, right? But in these times, there was a very prolonged period of mourning. It would last days on end, maybe even weeks, depending on the person. And in the Jewish culture, it was expected that the family of the deceased would pay to have musicians come and be on, basically be on retainer for that period of time to play music. So flute players would be there to play songs of lament to help the people to grieve. And now this is really strange. They would also hire, the family would hire professional wailers, weepers, to come and make a big emotional show. That was a custom. It may sound strange to us, but this was their practice. So if we can imagine the scene here, we've got in Bethany, which was a very small town, we've got a large group of people who've come in and are remaining there. Some people have come because they are either part of the family or they love this family, but then we've got others who are there because they're being paid. They're being paid to pay their respects. That's the way that people practiced grieving and prolonged funerals. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus shows up right outside of town. Martha finds him first, then she brings Mary to him, because Jesus says, I want to see Mary too. And Mary runs to Jesus and she falls at his feet. That was a very merry thing to do. Mary was always seemingly at the feet of Jesus. She loved Jesus so much. And you notice she says the same thing to Jesus that her sister Martha said, word for word, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And y'all, it might be easy for us, especially if we've ever encountered loss, we can almost hear the grief in her words coming off the page this profound sense of sadness and disappointment, even frustration. That what what Mary's saying is is basically true. If Jesus had come with the intention to heal Lazarus, he would have been healed. He never would have died. But of course, Jesus didn't come. Not initially. And at this point, it's not clear at all to Mary and Martha why Jesus is just now arriving. The journey should not have taken him that long. It'll become clear in a moment, of course, but they don't know. And you know, it's at this point that something strange happens. When Martha made that statement to Jesus, Jesus gave her a word of assurance. He said, your brother will rise again. Here, Jesus does no such thing. He doesn't really say anything initially. Jesus responds in a way that might surprise us. Look at verse 33. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, And the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And said, where have you laid him? They said to to him, Lord, 
Come and see. Jesus wept. Uh, I, I don't know if you're like me in this way. Whenever, and it's, 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 it's difficult to do anyway, but when, maybe if you close your eyes and you try to imagine Jesus, not just what he would have looked like, but, but what it would have been like maybe to follow him or to see him, to encounter him in his earthly ministry. So often when I think about Jesus walking the earth, I imagine him to be very stoic, unemotional, always totally composed, and really unaffected by the things that, that went on around him. Y'all, it's hard for me personally to imagine Jesus as being a very emotional person. And, I, and I'm not sure why that is. It might be that, that a lot of times paintings, uh, movies depict him that way. He's always got this very calm, stoic way about him in the way that he's portrayed. It could also be for me that, you know, sometimes I think of, of expressing emotion as a form of weakness. People who cry, people who get uh, beyond their, them, themselves emotionally, you know, something's, something's wrong in that case with me. If I lose control of myself, Jesus would never do that. It's hard for us maybe to imagine Jesus being in his feelings, right? But there's no getting around this scripture. And we shouldn't want to. We shouldn't want to dismiss what's happening right here. When Jesus saw Mary and the others weeping, John tells us he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. And I want to take a minute on this because this is, this is one of those places in the Bible where our translators really struggle to put it down correctly. And we praise God for Bible translators, men and women who have the ability to take the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, and to translate into English in a way that we can read and understand. What a gift. But right here, it's difficult for them. And I think we'll see why. When we read this, this, this English passage that says Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, y'all, that, that phrase, that word, deeply moved, as John wrote it in the original Greek, is actually the word outraged, angered. As Jesus stands in the midst of this funeral procession, these grieving people, John tells us he's deeply angered. He's furious, full of indignation. That's what deeply moved means. And, and the word troubled is actually the word for stirred up or agitated. This is not Jesus simply feeling sad feelings in his heart. He's mad. And if we ask the question, okay, what in the world does that emotion, does that frame of mind have to do with this situation? You know, it's, it makes sense when, I, when we really think about it. I think the most likely reason for Jesus to feel outrage in a moment like this is that as the Son of God, Jesus hates death. He hates death. And y'all, death, if we, if we go back to the very beginning of all things in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we realize that death was not an original feature of the world that God created. When God created all things and called them very good, death was not a part of that created order. Death enters in, in Genesis chapter 3, because of sin. Sin brings about the corruption of human beings and death follow suit. And so that when a person dies, when any person dies, even now, we who are Christian, we recognize this person has died 
not merely because their biological time has run out. But ultimately, we all die because we live under the curse of sin. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 15, you can read it on your own, but there, when the Apostle Paul speaks of the risen Christ who will also raise us one day, he speaks of Jesus raised in incorruptible glory, and then Jesus begins to do his great work of putting his enemies under his feet, of claiming and establishing once and for all authority forever. He puts his enemies where they belong, and Paul says, and the final enemy to be abolished is death. The last enemy that Jesus will defeat is death. And so I don't have to preach to say that death is our enemy. We all know that to be true. That's why we grieve it. That's why we hate it. But in the scripture, we find out that death is his enemy too. That Jesus hates death. And in his own dying and in his rising, he will defeat it once and for all. And so, y'all, in the face of death, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus feels outrage and indignation. He gets mad because this is the great enemy he's come to earth to defeat. So he says in his anger, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we get the shortest verse in the Bible, famously the shortest verse, the easiest verse to memorize, you can go ahead and lock it up in your mind right now if you're so inclined. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And so we get a, a three-dimensional picture here, right? There's, there's anger, there's outrage, there's also weeping, there's tears running down Jesus' face. And if we ask the question, because there are a lot of theories on this, why would Jesus weep right here? We can perhaps understand his initial anger over sin and death. Where are these tears coming from? Lots of theories. Some of the theories are right here in the Scripture. And you see them if you look in verse 36. The people around Jesus, they've got their own opinions. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So here are the theories, right, among the crowd. Jesus is weeping because he loved Lazarus. And certainly I think that's a part of it. John has gone out of his way multiple times in this chapter to tell us that Jesus had a very dear affection and love for Lazarus and Lazarus's family. That's one theory. Uh, perhaps some say Jesus is shedding tears of regret. Couldn't he have healed Lazarus the way he's healed others? Maybe he's crying because he couldn't get here in time to do it. Maybe he's crying because Jesus has finally run up against a problem too great even for him to solve. Now, that's one we can eliminate. That's a theory we can cast aside, of course, because Jesus, we know, Jesus is not weeping in regret or despair. Jesus knows what he's doing, and he knows what he's about to do. He's already told us earlier in the chapter what he plans to do. And so that theory won't, won't fly. Maybe it's that Jesus, he's not just angry over the ravages of sin and death, but he feels the anguish and the sadness of death. As he encounters these weeping people, Jesus is doing what Paul in Romans tells us we ought to do. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Jesus is touched by our infirmities, and so when we weep, he weeps with us. 
I think there's something to that. Here's the truth, though, y'all. Whatever the reasons for Jesus' tears might be, my hope is that we'll take great comfort in the fact that the Son of God sheds real tears with us and for us and among us. That right there should give us comfort that Jesus comes into earth not to remain aloof, not to hover above the mess of humanity, but to enter in all the way, including even in our grief and our tears. Now, when we, if you read through the New Testament, we're encouraging us, right, everybody to do that beginning this Friday. When we read through the New Testament, we're given reasons why God the Father sent His Son into the world. In different places, we're told why. What, what was the motivating heart behind it? And y'all, those reasons for why Jesus would take on flesh, why Jesus would suffer and die, the reasons are love and mercy and kindness, and compassion, and grace. And so right here, my hope is this. When we consider who God is as expressed, as revealed through the Son, Jesus Christ, may we never, ever again think of God as a stoic, apathetic, disinterested, dispassionate being. Someone who set the world in motion and then left us to ourselves, and He couldn't care less about our problems and concerns. That is simply false. And Jesus proves it. The heart of God toward us. We have proof, just in case we needed it, right here in John 11, proof that Jesus really does love us. Proof that God's heart is not to withdraw from sinners like me and you, but to come close. So close that God Himself would be willing to take on humanity that He would become touchable. That Jesus, in a very real sense, would come down to us to hold us by the hand and to even share our tears, to weep with us. There are a few things in the midst of hard times that ought to comfort us like that. That on one hand, y'all, this, this picture of Jesus we get, He is a holy God that in the face of sin and death, he becomes outraged. As any holy God should. Because sin does not fly with Him. Death will not stand. But He's also a gracious God who treats sinners and sufferers with the utmost tenderness and care. He weeps with us. He suffers with us and alongside us. Now, y'all, if the story ended right here, we really get a wonderful picture of the heart of Christ, don't we? That Jesus has come to pay His respects, to shed some tears, I'll be praying for you, and then head on about His business. But that would reveal His heart only. And the truth about John 11 is, this, y'all, this is the revealing of His glory, not just His feelings. And we see the turn happen right here in verse 38. So Jesus... Verse 38, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, 
for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Something we saw in the early verses of this same chapter, we saw it last week, when Jesus first heard about the sickness of Lazarus, Jesus made a declaration. He said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So y'all, Jesus has already called His shot. Jesus has already declared what's going to happen. The outcome has been predetermined. Jesus, the Son, and God the Father, have all, they're in concert on this. He's not making it up as He goes. It's, almost, it's as good as done already. And so Jesus didn't show up in Bethany to preach the funeral or to offer his condolences. Jesus has come to fulfill God's glorious purpose. And y'all, that helps us maybe to understand this kind of strange prayer he prays. Beginning in verse 41, it's a little awkward to be honest, because Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven, and yet he prays this prayer that's, that's in a sense meant for us to be included in on. When he said these things, or he said, he said rather that, that uh, uh, God, I'm praying, Right? And I'm thanking you because I know you hear me, but I'm really talking to you right now for their sake, for those who are listening in and watching. Right? So that when I speak the words to you, these words are communicating that we are one in mission and purpose in concert with each other because what I'm about to do will show forth who I really am. Right? So the prayer here is not just Jesus speaking to the Father, but it's a, it's, a, it's a prayer for us to hear and to, in a sense to be included in on. Right? Because what's about to happen? And now here it is, verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Well, Lazarus was dead. Four days dead. Four days in the tomb. There's no coming back. There's no mostly. There's no slightly. There's no revival potential here. He's gone. In fact, Martha says, don't remove the stone. He's going to smell. You know, a very visceral image right there of reality. And yet at the sound of Jesus' voice, three words, Lazarus, come forth. At the command of Christ's word, this dead man's heart begins to pump blood all over again. His organs resume their proper function. His brain comes alive and begins to fire Again, his muscles regain their strength. Y'all, this is not resuscitation. This is resurrection. And still wrapped up in his grave clothes. Y'all, and when I was a kid, and still today, 
when I imagine Lazarus coming out of the grave, I kind of imagine him coming out like this. He, this is, when, the tombs would have been more like low to the, like doggy doors, almost. Low to the ground, wrapped up in the wrappings customary for burial. This is a man who's probably army crawling out, wrapped up like a mummy. Face covered in cloth. At the command of Jesus Christ, this man is alive and well. Alive and well. Now, it's so difficult for us to imagine these kinds of scenes. Certainly, John does a great job of, of giving us detail and painting the picture. But even still, it's hard to put ourselves there. And I, sometimes I, I, I kind of put my own details in, and that's, that's dangerous, right? But, but think with me for just a moment about this scene. As the tomb is opened up and the words of Jesus enter in and now Lazarus crawls his way out. Just try to imagine joy, but also terror. How scary would this have been? I mean, you have to imagine people screaming, people fainting. The crowd's speechless. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. Nobody had a category for anything like this. This wonderful, joyful, terrifying moment. Who in the world are we really dealing with here? A man who has the power to do this. Even in death, there is no power so great that Jesus cannot overcome it. Now, I, I want to I close with a question. It may seem like a frivolous question or an obvious question, but it's, it's an important one. If we were to ask, okay, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus raise his friend from the dead? Is it because they were friends? And Jesus couldn't bear to see his friend gone? Is it because, you know, so often when a person passes away, you know, maybe younger than we expected, we say, no, they, they had so much more to do. There was so much more life ahead of them. Maybe Jesus had that sense of Lazarus. He just couldn't let him go. Was it a raw display of power? Jesus just wanted to show how great he could be? in the eyes of others. You know, it's interesting when we read through the whole of this chapter, Jesus, it seemingly, does not raise Lazarus from the dead mainly for Lazarus' sake. Although I'm sure Lazarus appreciated it. I'm sure Mary and Martha were thrilled, right? But he wasn't just doing his friend a favor. So many times throughout this chapter, and I would encourage you to go back and read the whole thing. just take you a few minutes. Jesus' intentional focus is on the glory of God. The glory of God. He said it from the, from the start. This will not end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Did I not already tell you, Martha, that if you believe, you will see what? A resurrection? Your brother again? No. You will see the glory of God so that they will believe. That was Jesus' purpose, that the witness of God's glory would result in faith. And so, y'all, the resurrection of Lazarus, both in the moment it happened and even now as we read it, it's pointing us to something greater than the story itself, greater than only Lazarus and his life. It's a miracle that serves as a sign, a pointer to something that you and I may actually experience for ourselves. And this is another time where Jesus has 
called his shot. He's already told us in very profound language what this right here is all about. The raising of Lazarus is now a callback to something Jesus told us in chapter 5. I'll put it on the screen for us. Listen to how, how absolutely unified chapter 5 and chapter 11 are. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11, that's a gift. It's a blessing to Lazarus and his family. But so much greater, it's a sign showing what Jesus has come to do for the whole world. It's a miracle that's pointing us to a far greater and ultimate miracle there will come a day, Jesus promises, when at His voice, everyone will be raised. Every single person who is in the tomb will be raised again and will come forth, and Jesus, the great judge, will raise them to either life or judgment. It's called the great day of the Lord. It is a fixed day on God's calendar. It will come to pass. It is yet one day future. But it's certain. Jesus promises it. But y'all, right before that, he makes a promise not for one future day, but for the here and now. And that's what I want to focus on here as we close. What Jesus says, an hour is coming, and now is, right now, today, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Well, that's a promise of salvation. That's not what happened in Lazarus's case. You know, Lazarus was a mortal man who died, and Jesus raised his mortal body back to physical life. That's a miracle. But that's not the miracle Jesus speaks of here. He's talking about salvation. We who are otherwise dead in our sins may hear the voice of Jesus and live. We'll be forgiven of our sins. We'll be raised to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, Paul says, just as Jesus Christ has been raised, so we too may walk in newness of life, here and now, by His grace. Because Jesus says, I have life in myself, and therefore I can give life to whomever I wish, anyone who believes in Him is raised again. One day, yes, but today, raised to walk in newness of life. Well, this is amazing. That the promise is not that just like Lazarus, we'll all be raised. Now, that would be spectacular, I know. 
But think about the fact that Lazarus had to die again. Can you even imagine that he's been raised? And I, we, we, the Bible never tells us how much longer he lived, but he had to get sick and die again. He got weak and he died again. That's not the promise. That would ultimately do us no good. The promise is that we may hear the voice of Jesus Christ and live now. And that is a gift we receive by faith. And so, y'all, we saw this last week. It bears repeating again today. Jesus did not just claim this power, power over death. He displayed it. He showed it. And if, as magnificent as the miracle in John 11 is, the far greater miracle is still yet to come. That Jesus Himself will go to the cross and will suffer and die for us, for our sake. And then He will rise again in all His glory, incorruptible glory that can never be tarnished, that can never be lost, that can never be diminished, conquering forever the power of sin and death. That's what Jesus Christ has come to do. And He didn't just come to do it as a raw display of power. He came to do it on our behalf. That through His death, our sins are forgiven. And through His life, the promise of resurrection now belongs to us. There will come a day when the voice of Jesus Christ will summon us out to life eternal. As a gift of His love and kindness and mercy and grace. So earlier, y'all, we, we reflected on the reason Jesus came to earth, the reason Jesus took on flesh. I hope I gave a compelling case for that, but nobody says it better than the author of Hebrews. And so let's close with this little section from Hebrews chapter 2, why Jesus came and why it matters for us. In Hebrews 2, it says, Therefore, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, through Jesus' death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Because Jesus became one of us to suffer and die for us. He has now rendered powerless sin, death, the grave, and the devil. So that we by faith might be forever free. Free from the fear of death and eternally free from its power. What a gift. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm asking this morning for us, for all of us, both in this room and watching online, that we would see and savor this magnificent Jesus. And Lord, that we would, on, on one hand, that we would see uh, his, his, his power and stand in awe of His power. Who could do such a thing? Who could raise a man from the dead? This is your business alone, God. Only you can do it. And you have done it. 
And so, Lord, give us a, a deep sense of just how powerful, how great you are. And Lord, would you show us this morning this, this sense of outrage that Jesus felt in the face of death because you are holy and righteous and you hate what sin has done to us, to this world. Jesus' blood boiled in the face of death. It is his enemy, and an enemy he came to defeat. And Lord, at the same time, would you give us a sense of his tenderness, of the sweetness of the presence of Jesus Christ, who wept, who shed real tears right alongside us. What a Savior we've been given. Father, help us this morning to, uh, to embrace and enjoy the miracle we just read about, but help us also to see beyond it to the greater miracle of Jesus' own rising from the dead. Because now death has been conquered once and for all. And we may live by faith. Father, I pray, help us, give us a, a deep sense of relief right now where we sit. The world does not rest on our shoulders. This life is precious, but it's not all there is. We have a hope and a future and a promise beyond our imagination, sealed and guaranteed, because Jesus is alive. Let us breathe easy today, Father. And let us feel gratitude, joy, that we've been given such a gift. Let us believe him and entrust ourselves to him. And let us walk in newness of life as those who have been raised from spiritual death. We ask it in Christ's most holy name. Amen.